We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Our passage this morning will be verses 1 and 2. When I was a kid, I was never a good athlete. It seemed I was always better with books than basketballs. I could write better than I could run. I could study better than I could slide into home plate. I could tutor better than I could throw. I was just better at academics than athletics. And when I went outside to play with our friends in the streets, because that's what we did back then, if our parents wanted to punish us, they told us we had to stay inside. We always went outside and played in the street. We always played football or basketball or some other game in the street. And invariably, what would happen is the most talented football player or the most talented basketball player would be the team captain, and then they picked the second best guy to be the other team captain, and then they would pick their team. And without fail, I was seldom the first choice. It seemed I was always chosen toward the end of the selection process. And I think many times I was chosen merely because I was the better choice of a few bad options. But it never failed. Every time I was picked, regardless of what time of the game I was picked, it always made me feel good. They chose me. As a kid, I thought, the other kids were choosing me for their team because it said something about me. I thought it indicated there was something they valued in me. They saw some skill set in me that they thought would be beneficial to their team. They were imagining all the points I was going to bring for the team. Now, if I'm going to be honest, um, oftentimes those beliefs were misguided and wrong. I think many times I was chosen merely out of pity. The captain of the team chose me not because there was something special about me, not because I had some skill set or I was going to score a lot of points. No, he chose me merely because he wanted to be nice. He was doing me an act of kindness. He was trying to be a friend. So in kindness, he selected me for his team and then merely endured my lack of skills. I was chosen not because I had something to offer. Not because I was good at it, but merely because someone who had far more to offer than me showed me undeserved kindness and grace. This is the idea behind election in the Bible. Election speaks of God choosing to set his love and affection on certain individuals. And he chooses those individuals solely because of his good pleasure and will. He chooses individuals who can offer him nothing. They have nothing to give, nothing of value for him. They can do nothing to earn or deserve his affection. In fact, everyone he chooses deserves the exact opposite. They don't deserve his affection. They deserve his condemnation. And to those individuals, he provides salvation. Salvation from sin. Salvation from damnation. And then he gives to them all the spiritual blessings of heaven. And eternal life with them. And this idea of election is taught all the way through scripture. You can go into the Old Testament and find election. Israel, the nation, is said to be elect. That is, God chose Israel as a nation to be his people so he could shower them with mercy and with love and with kindness and with blessing. Deuteronomy 7, Moses in verse 6 tells Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose Israel out of all the nations. Out of all the peoples he could have chosen, he picked them. Is it because they were bigger, stronger, better, more holy, more devout? No. It was because that's what he wanted to do. He chose them according to his own will. 
Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What did Israel do to deserve to be God's elect, to be God's chosen people? Nothing. What about them made them worthy of this? Nothing. And in the New Testament, the idea of election is applied to believers. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God chose you. If you are a Christian, he selected you before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, before you ever did anything that was good, and before you ever committed your first sin. Ephesians 4 ends in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Here it is, according to the kind intention of his will. It was a pure act of kindness. Undeserved kindness. He chose you out of an abundance of grace. Verse 7 says, We have redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You did nothing for this. Election is all of grace. It is God giving you what you do not deserve and withholding from you the things that you do deserve. It's God giving you what you cannot earn or acquire for yourself. And it's this idea of election that Peter is going to address in our passage this morning. And he's going to use the idea of election to bring comfort and encouragement to Christians who are, well, to say the least, suffering terribly. In 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter provides four characteristics of election so that you can be comforted. Four characteristics of election so that you can be comforted. Let's just read the passage. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's begin with the very first characteristic of election. The first characteristic of election, you were elected to be an exile. You were elected to be an exile. The idea of election shows up at the end of verse 1 where he says, who are chosen. The word there is those who have been elected, eclectos. You have been selected. In the NASB, it almost sounds like that's a verb. That chosen here is a verb. That it's describing the action that God took. But that's not what this word is. This word is an adjective. It's describing an attribute of a person. It describes the people Peter is addressing. They are elect. They have been chosen by God. They have been selected for salvation. And the NASB gives it in a way that it's hard to relate this back, but it's obvious in the Greek. Chosen modifies or describes another word. It describes the word aliens. That's how the NASB translates it. Aliens you could translate as a sojourner. You could say it's an exile, an alien, or even a stranger. It refers to a person who resides in a foreign land. They're not at home. They're in somebody else's land, and they're living alongside the natives of that land. They're temporary residents. So if you put these two together, chosen aliens, 
Or another way, elect sojourners. Or you can use the title of the sermon this morning. Elect exiles. Doesn't appear that way in the NASB. But I think there is a translation that gets this, I mean, hits the nail right on the head here. If you're reading the ESV, I've asked the guys to put this on the screen. The ESV reads this way, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That is the most literal, straightforward reading of the text. Peter is writing to elect exiles. Elect is the same word you have in the NASB for chosen. Exile is the same word you have for aliens. They have been elected not only to salvation. They have been elected to dwell as exiles and sojourners where they're currently living. So in what sense are they exiles? Notice verse 1 again. He says, who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In the ESV again, he has the dispersion. This is the term diaspora. The the NASB has it as uh, scattered. Diaspora refers to the dispersion. When the Jews were kicked out of their homeland and they were taken, let's say, by Babylon and they were forced to dwell in other nations away from their home, they were considered to be exiles, sojourners who were just dwelling in another person's land for a time. This term is usually applied to Jews. But Peter here is not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. He's using this term, dispersion, to describe Gentiles. They're elect exiles who are living in a foreign land. Strangers. And they're living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are Gentiles living in their home countries. By the way, if you want to know what that area is, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that's the modern-day Turkey. It describes that region of where Turkey is today. He makes no mention of the Jews anywhere in his epistle. This is a letter to Gentiles. James wrote to the Jews, James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. There's the idea of the dispersion being scattered. Peter doesn't say that. Peter looks at Gentiles and says, you are exiles of the dispersion. You have been scattered among foreign nations that are not your home. And yet he's looking at Gentiles who are living in what they would call their home. They're living in their native country. So how does he call them exiles? How does he refer to them as aliens and sojourners who are living in a foreign land if they're living in their home country? They are aliens. They are elect exiles in the sense that they have been chosen. They have been elected for salvation. They are residents and citizens of that nation, wherever they're living. They may be residents or citizens of the Roman Empire. But Peter is focusing not on their earthly citizenship. He's focusing on the reality that they are citizens of heaven. And they are exiles in the sense that they cannot go to heaven right now. They are stuck there. And they're there because God has elected them to be there. They are residents of heaven, chosen and beloved of God. And that's where their true home is. This idea that they are exiles because they are living in the world is also found in 1 Peter 1, verse 17. If you look at verse 17, he says, If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. You're an exile, you're an alien 
not because you've moved to some new country, but you're an exile and an alien because your true citizenship is in heaven and you're stuck in a world that hates everything that you love. He doesn't say during your brief stay in a foreign nation. He says you should conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven while you're here on the earth. The world is not your home. You are an alien and a stranger. You are an exile. You belong in heaven. That's where your home is. And yet you must be here for a season. You must be here for a time. And you're unable to go to your true home, which is where I think all of us really want to be. Here's the point. You and I today have been elected to be exiles in these United States of America. As this nation becomes increasingly secular, as our government and society becomes increasingly hostile to Christians and to Christianity, the more you live out your Christian faith, the more you are going to be exposed as being different. You're not like us. You're not like the world around you, just as the Jews in Babylon weren't like the Babylonians. The more we live out our Christian faith, the more we become aliens to the other Americans. We become strangers to the culture that surrounds us. And the more that divide deepens, the more you will begin to feel like an exile living in a hostile nation. Peter was writing to people who were living during a time when Christians were oddities. They didn't live like anybody else. The rest of the world practiced paganism. The rest of the world worshipped many gods. They engaged in rampant idolatry. They engaged themselves with temple prostitutes. They worshipped the emperor. Christians refused to do all of it. They were unlike anyone around them. They were in their physical homes. But they were exiles. Aliens to the culture that surrounded them. And why is it important for you to remember that they were elect exiles? That God elected and chosen them for that? Because as we watch our nation crumble morally, it's easy to look back to a better time. It's easy to think back and say, wow, I wish I could have been alive a hundred years ago when America had some resemblance of Christian values. You know, when America was different, when the church was respected and people actually went to church every Sunday and the majority of Americans tried to live out a moral life, I wish I could go back to that time. It's easy to begin to question why God would have you alive today. Have you alive during a time where you get to experience the moral and spiritual collapse of a nation that you love? And if you catch yourself doing that, you need to remember that you have been elected. You have been chosen by God. And you have been chosen by God to be a light in a dark world. You have been elected to reside as aliens, as exiles, in a culture and in a society that hates everything that you love. You're here by divine appointment. Not coincidence, not random chance. You are alive today in these United States in the 21st century so that you can be a light in a dark world. And it's getting darker by the day. So why? Why did God elect Peter's audience and why did he elect you to be in exile? Why did he elect me to be here? Why? This brings us to the second characteristic of election. You were elected according to the Father's love. 
you were elected according to the Father's love. Look at verse 2. He says, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The opening phrase, according to, sets the standard of your election. You are not elected by the roll of a dice. You are not elected by drawing straws. What was the standard God used when he determined to elect you? When he decided that you would live as strangers and aliens in the world. The standard was his foreknowledge. Pastor Michael has taught recently on foreknowledge, so I'm just going to give a basic overview because he's already gone through it with you. The foreknowledge of God does not mean that God merely knew some facts about you. It doesn't mean that he knew your address, which he did. It doesn't mean that he merely knew some details about your life, which he did. Peter uses a word that's often used to describe an intimate physical relationship. Adam knew Eve, and they bore children. This is not just knowledge. This is the intimate knowledge of a love relationship. This is the intimate knowledge that God possessed before ever creating you. When Peter says that you were elected as exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, what he's saying is that God elected you for the purpose of demonstrating his love and his affection for you. It was his desire to have a love relationship with you. It was him choosing to love you, despite the fact that you and I could never earn it. And despite the fact that he knew for many of us, most of our, much of our lives would be spent hating him. You are an elect exile, living in a foreign and hostile land because God determined to set his love on you. He elected you as exiles out of love. This changes kind of the view that some people have of God. God is distant and aloof. You know, it's the deism kind of thing. God is like a watchmaker. He makes a watch and turns it loose and just kind of watches it tick. And they think, well, that must be what God is doing with us. He's put me in this country that's falling apart, and now he's just kind of letting it go. But when you understand election, you understand that that is not the case. God elected you and placed you here for a reason. He placed you here because he loves you and he cares for you. This demonstrated the end of that little phrase, verse 2 again, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Your Father. Father evokes the image of a loving, caring, compassionate concern. The kind of love and care that a father has for his children. This is not a divine indifference. The father loves you as a father loves his children. Peter's writing to people who lived in a world that hated them. A world in which the government was actively seeking to kill them. And Peter wants them to know Look, guys, God is not absent in this. He knows all about your present circumstances. These circumstances didn't take him by surprise. He's not indifferent to them. They didn't come about without his knowledge. He has known about them. He decreed all of them. And more importantly, he loves you and he cares for you as a heavenly father. This is the message Peter's readers needed to hear. Peter was writing during the days of Emperor Nero. I'm not going to go into detail. I did some reading on Nero this week. and um, This guy was a sadistic killer. There's, there's no way around it. He murdered his mother after three or four attempts. He tried to get a house to collapse on her. He tried to poison her, among other things. He murdered his brother, his aunt, two of his wives. 
He engaged in rampant sexual immorality. He lived a homosexual lifestyle. This guy was really bad. He also enjoyed killing Christians. And I said he enjoyed it. This wasn't a religious persecution. It's believed he set fire to the city of Rome and then blamed the Christians. And then as punishment for this crime, he would burn them. And he would burn them so he could light up his rose garden at night and he could see his roses. That's who is their king. That's what they're living in. Peter knew his readers were suffering. He knew they were having a difficult time. If you go over to chapter 4, verse 12, he tells them this is something that you should expect. You're in elect exile. You're living in the world. It's hostile to you. Chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You're in exile in a hostile land. You should expect it. Chapter 5, verse 9. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. If you're a Christian, just go ahead and write it down. You're going to suffer. It's part of the Christian life. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that in suffering... I can see the love of the Father? Well, yes. You can see that your loving Heavenly Father is there, He's behind it all, He sees it all, and He's going to use all of it for your good. First, He reminds them that their suffering is only for a short while. That is to say, eventually God's going to take you out of this. You're not going to have to endure this forever. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials are only for a short season. Your life is but a vapor. It'll be over before you know it. And I also want to point out, he says, for a little while, if necessary. Not arbitrary. They're necessary. Secondly, you can see the love of the Father in suffering and trials because they prove the validity of your faith. You, you get through a trial, you get through a hard time, and you get to the end of it and you realize your faith is still intact. You were able to weather the storm. God preserved you. I just read 1 Peter 1, verse 6, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering, trials, persecution proves your faith because you endured and he sustains you to the end. That's why James and James 1 said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. First Peter 2, if you'll turn over there, he talks about suffering there as well. The Father's love is displayed in suffering because it makes you more like Christ. It makes you more like Christ. And what could be more loving than that? That he would make you like his son. That the Father would elect you to be conformed to the image of Christ. First Peter 2, verse 21, he says, For you have been called... For this purpose. You were elected and then you were called for this purpose. What purpose is he referring to? Go back to the next, previous verse, verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You're living the Christian life and as a result you're suffering because of it. That is the purpose for which you have been called. 
Verse 21 again, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Suffering is intended to teach you to be more like Christ, that you would follow in his steps. But I don't want to go through suffering. If God was truly loving, he wouldn't make me suffer. Well, there's a problem with that. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing but suffering. Christ didn't deserve any of it. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was perfect, and the Father loved him perfectly. They had a perfect love relationship. And yet it was the Father's will that Jesus come and suffer. And how did Jesus respond? What example did he leave for us? 1 Peter 2, verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Revile refers to being abused. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Father has elected you as exiles to suffer in this world for a brief time. And through that suffering, he will make you more like Christ by teaching you to entrust yourself more and more to him. It's in the fires of suffering that self-sufficiency and self-dependency are consumed. It's in the fire of trials of this life that we learn that we have a loving Heavenly Father who cares for us and we can trust Him through all of it. That's why in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, He says, casting all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You don't need to worry about what persecution is coming. You don't need to worry and try to prepare yourself to endure it. You need to trust the Lord. Suffering is the means by which he gets your eyes off this world. To get your eyes off the things of this world and get you to divorce yourself from the desires of the world. That you would fix your gaze and your desires on heaven, your true home. You have been elected as exiles in a hostile world and you have been elected according to your heavenly Father's love for you. Third characteristic of election. You are elected to be sanctified by the Spirit. Look again at verse 2, chapter 1. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is also part of the Father's loving purpose in electing you. He elected you that you would be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification refers to being set apart, being separate, distinct from the world around you. To put it another way, it means for you to be holy. Holy is the idea of being separate, set apart. You are not common. You're not like everyone else. Whatever is holy is different. You are chosen by God. You are elected for the purpose of being set apart from the world around you. For being different. Paul brings these two ideas together of being chosen and being holy. Colossians 3 verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Holiness is a part of election. You are expected to be different. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 Peter repeats this idea. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." You were elected for the purpose of being holy. 
separate from sin, distinct and different from all the people around you that love sin. And notice in 1 Peter 1-2, he says, you were elected by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit. And it began at your conversion. When the Spirit set you apart. When He cleansed you through faith. When He removed the dominating and controlling desire for sin. When He gave you new holy longings for righteousness and for purity. When the Spirit made you a new creature. When He caused you to be born again. He set you apart from everything in the world. He made you different. It was at that moment, practically speaking, that you became an exile living in America. That you became different from everyone else. It was at that moment that the believers who received Peter's letter became exiles in their homelands. It was here that the Spirit caused you to be vastly different. Your life fundamentally and radically changed. Even if you don't remember the day of your conversion. Even if you don't have a conversion story. It was at that moment when you had true and saving faith. that The Spirit set you apart. One day you were living at home. At home, wherever you were on the day of your conversion. You were living in a land of sinners and rebels against God. And you were perfectly content right where you were. And so was I. And the next moment, you were still in the same country. You were still in the same home. But now everything in the world around you was so vastly contrary to what you wanted and what you desired. Everybody in the world is trying to figure out how to prolong your life. You're praying, Lord, would you please come? Get me out of here. So vastly different. The old saying, this world is not my home, finally became true for you. And his work continues to this day. He should be continuing to set you apart from sin. And if he has begun that work in you, if he started that work in you, he will finish that work. Philippians 1 verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That work will be completed when you either die and go to heaven, or Jesus comes back and you receive your glorified body. And the question this morning is, has this happened for you? Again, I'm not asking if you remember the day you were converted. I'm not asking you, do you have a conversion experience? What I'm asking you is, are you different than the world around you? And again, I'm not asking you, are you eccentric? Are you just kind of weird? We're not asking that. You can be different in the wrong way. What I'm asking you is, are you holy? Are you set apart? Here's a good way to test it. When you go to work, do you have to remind your coworkers that you're a Christian? Or do they just know? When the new person shows up in the office and they're going to talk about you, how do they describe you? Do they point to you and say, um, she's a Christian? I don't mean she's a Bible thumper and she's going to preach to you every moment. I mean she lives differently. She doesn't do the things that we do. She doesn't go to the places that we go. She doesn't drink like we drink. She doesn't like the things that we like. She's completely different. She won't engage in those conversations that we have. And don't go to her and ask her to do those things because she won't do it. She's a Christian. She doesn't need to remind anybody who she is. They already know. Is that true of you? The Father elected you according to his love to be in exile. To be in exile in your own country. To be in exile at home. The Spirit sets you apart from sin in the world. I hope you're hearing the Trinity here. This passage doesn't work if the Trinity isn't true. The Spirit sets you apart from sin and the world around you. 
The fourth characteristic of election. You were elected to be obedient to the Son. You were elected to be obedient to the Son. Notice verse 2 again. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Peter gives the purpose and the end result of election. That you would be obedient to Jesus Christ. There are some today who teach what is called carnal Christianity. Have you heard of this? It's the idea that you can be a Christian and still pursue all of your carnal desires. And so when they find someone who professes to be a Christian, but yet they act like an unbeliever, they say, oh, don't worry about it, they're just a carnal Christian. Or they say, well, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but you certainly don't have to obey Him like He's your Master because apparently they didn't do a word study on the word Lord, which means master. Peter disagrees with them. Right here in our passage, he said, you were elected to be obedient. And in fact, Jesus himself disagrees. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. True saving faith, those who have been elected by God, will have lives that are marked by increasing obedience. And if your life is not marked by increasing levels of obedience, you have a problem. Jesus spoke about those in Matthew 7. He said in verse 22 and 23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? They had religion. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That last phrase there, you could say it another way. Depart from me, you who live like there is no law. All the religion in the world will not overcome a life of disobedience. All the religious ceremonies in the world will not rescue you from the judgment that will come if your life is not marked by spirit-empowered obedience. You remember the story of Saul? Saul thought he could go out and do it his way, and he refused to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He refused to get rid of all the good sheep and the good ox. And he comes home and he offers a sacrifice as if, that's going to change the fact that he disobeyed God? What did the prophet say to him? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, to be sure, I'm not saying that to be elect, you need to go out and obey, and that's how you become elect. Obedience is how those who are elect behave. It's what you do when you are elect. You obey. It's empowered by the Spirit, but is the result of the diligent effort of the believer. In Philippians 2, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's on you. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it's at this point that people say, Okay, 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 hang on. I know I need to obey. I hear that a lot. You need to obey. You need to obey. You need to obey. But I'm struggling. You don't understand. This is really hard. I fail so much. I hate it, but what do I do? What do I do when I fail? Look at verse 2 again. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The first one is the practical step. That's the step that the elect must take. You must obey. You must strive for obedience in everything. In everything you seek to be pleasing to Christ. Colossians 1 and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. That's what you are required to do. Seek to obey Christ in everything. And when you fail, be sprinkled with His blood. Well, what does that mean? There's two things here. 
First, this refers to the entrance into a covenant. In Exodus 24, Moses reads the Mosaic covenant to the people. And he gives them the covenant. Verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They hear the covenant and they realize this gives us an obligation to obey. We are required to act in a certain way now. And then that covenant is sealed in blood. Exodus 24, 8, So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He seals the covenant with blood. And the covenant is, ex- is expected to bring about a change in behavior. But that's the Mosaic Covenant. And we're not in the Mosaic Covenant. You are in the New Covenant. When Peter speaks of being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, he's, in, he's referring to the enactment of the New Covenant and our duty to be obedient in the New Covenant. And so in one sense, when Peter says, be sprinkled with his blood, he's saying you, you're in the New Covenant. You have entered into this covenant. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't just a picture of entering into a covenant. The sprinkling of blood on the altar symbolized the forgiveness of sin. The high priest would go into the temple once a year, and he would sprinkle blood on the altar. You know what he saw every year? He saw the dried blood from last year. And the year before, and the year before, and the year before. Constantly having to go back and ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness requires the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. To be sprinkled with the blood of Christ is to be forgiven by Christ. It's to avail yourself of the promises of forgiveness given to you in the new covenant. It's to run back to Christ and say, I've fallen again. I failed again. Would you please forgive me? It's to plead the promises of the gospel. Every time you fail, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wayne Grudem said, Our calling is to obey, but when we fail, the atoning blood can still be applied. It's the beauty of the gospel. Peter encourages the Christians of his day, these elect exiles, to be obedient to Christ. And when they fail, and they did and they do still, run back to Christ for cleansing. Keep running back. That's the Christian life. It's a life of constantly striving for obedience. Constantly striving, and then it seems like constantly failing. And then constantly running back to Christ. I hear people say, well, I really doubt my salvation when I fall into sin. How do I know if I'm still a believer? Question, do you still believe the promise that Christ will forgive you? Are you still willing to run back to Him and trust Him? You're doing fine. This is where election can be helpful to you especially when you fall into sin, especially if you fall into a grievous sin that really offends your conscience. Remember, you were elected before the foundations of the world. Before God created anything, before Christ ever went to the cross, before you ever committed your first sin, God the Father knew you. He knew you perfectly. He knew every sin that you would ever commit. Before you were saved, after you were saved, from natural birth to natural death. And Christ's atonement on the cross paid for all of it. He cleanses from all sin. If you have sin this morning, if you're burdened by guilt and pain from disobedience, even willful disobedience, run to Christ. Go back to Him and receive cleansing. Because He doesn't cease to care for you and love you simply because you sin. Hebrews 7 has a really interesting passage. He talks about the Levitical priests. 
you know, the ones who went and sprinkled the blood? The former priests, speaking of Levitical ones, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Think about the Levitical system. You always had to have the high priest go in. Well, one day the high priest dies. Can't offer anything for your forgiveness anymore until they get another high priest. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Here it is. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to, his, to apply his blood to the sins and the life of his elect to intercede with the Father for them as an advocate. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, pleading and interceding for you on your behalf. If you have sinned this morning, go to your high priest. Go back to Christ that he can cleanse and forgive you. Peter closes this little section with a simple prayer. It's a prayer and a request for his readers. Into verse 2, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, and that grace is secured by the work of Christ. And peace is the result of his grace. Peter's prayer is that you would experience the fullness of God's grace and peace. Ultimately, this is the purpose of your election. That you would have peace with God. And that peace is only possible with Christ. It's only possible if you run to Christ. And the question this morning is, have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you still looking to yourself? Are you still holding on to your sin? It's not, I have Jesus plus my good works. It's not Jesus is just my helper to get me over the cross the line. No, no, you have Jesus or you have nothing. Have you trusted him this morning? If not, you need to do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you are kind and gracious, that you are loving to us, that you have elected us. We thank you that we can trust you in the midst of this world. We thank you for Christ, that in him we can have peace with you. Father, you know those this morning here who are not in Christ, who do not know you, Father, we just ask that you would work in their spirit, sanctify them, set them apart, that they would come to a full and saving knowledge of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.